Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Eric LeMay, and you're listening to the Literature Channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking with Nicole Walker, who's just published a new book about sustainability. In fact, that's its title, Sustainability, A Love Story. Now, if some part of you is groaning internally at the possibility of hearing another gloom-and-doom sermon about the destruction of the planet and everything you haven't been doing to prevent it, And if some part of you is inclined to skip this interview because, well, you're driving down the road by yourself, not carpooling, not in an electric car, with the heater or the air conditioning turned up a little too far, don't skip it and stop groaning. Walker's book is not that kind of book. She's been there and, in some ways, is still there, trying to figure out how to live sustainably when it seems so impossible when the demands of family and work and everything else press in on us in this great mess that is our lives, and damn if we didn't forget our reusable shopping bags again. And yet, we'd still really like to see our planet not die, and we really like to be a part of its not dying. In situations ranging from McDonald's and Sam's Club to outer space in our inner lives, Walker faces the challenges of sustainability with deep humor, deeper insight, and an abiding sympathy for what it means to be all too human and your love for other humans and the struggling earth that we all share. Nicole Walker, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you today. I am so excited to talk about this new book that you've just published. It's called Sustainability, A Love Story. And I would like to start right with the subtitle, because we think about sustainability as this concept, this idea, this ethos. It's it's comes from the, the world of science to us and has permeated our lives. Is this sustainable? Is that sustainable? A love story? Tell us about how these title and subtitle come together. It's a great question. And I think, you know, by having that title and that subtitle, it made the book easier to write in a lot of ways because, you know, I feel like sustainability and environmentalism that has this tone about it that is very serious and very, you know, tragic and dramatic, which of course it is. Like the things are, things are not going well. But there's also this that earnestness and that adamant attitude that says you must behave like this. And the part that I feel like is often missing is why, you know, why do we want to sustain anything? Why do we want to keep things going? And so uh, the, the impetus for the idea of the book is that love is hard, right? Change is hard. People are hard. Um, the idea that, um, the idea that, we can do anything to change the way that we see each other and see the planet seems impossible. And, and what I wanted to do with this book is not, not preach or tell people what, what to do, but think about how I myself sort of work to finding new perspectives and ways of thinking about all kinds of things that might have some impact on also how we treat each other and the planet. So there's these little moments like, you know, thinking about how the first astronaut went into space and turned and saw the Earth as this blue marble. And what does it mean to be able to sort of imagine holding the Earth in your hands? And does that require some sort of extra gentleness? Does it make you feel all powerful? And just associating and kind of riffing on that idea is, you know, paying attention to our own perspectives might be the one way to change it. So the book goes through a lot of of stories about, you know, environmental situations and what we might try to do about them and how even trying to change them is uh, evidence of our either 
stuck in the mud kind of way of thinking about things. Like we can't shift our perspective. For instance, I know, let's go ahead and um, shoot sulfur dioxide into the sky so we can have this layer around the planet that protects us from the sun, as opposed to fundamentally doing anything different. Similar to, I think, ways that we, you know, sometimes, uh, I, you know, I compare uh, that to, to addiction in some ways, where sometimes we just want to block certain emotions instead of actually dealing with the source. And so by making these parallels, I feel like we're moving toward if we maybe loved ourselves and loved each other a little bit more, um, maybe we would be able to see the planet in this in this other way, in this more cooperative and kind way. Um, But back to the word sustainability, I just want to read a little passage from uh, the chapter called Sustainability. Because I do think the word itself is so, I, I, I use it pretty ironically by the end of the book. And and uh, I feel like the title, Sustainability, A Love Story, suggests like that in between the, in between the title and the subtitle in that colon is where the irony lies. So I'm just going to read a little bit from, you know, that, that the first page of this, this chapter called Sustainability. That would be great. Sustainability is easy enough to divine. Keeping going what is already going seems like a good idea. Is is good. It denotes being aliveness, fact. Tucked inside the word are other good words, sustenance, maintain, able. Something we are doing and can keep doing. Present tense, simple. We sustain, we are sustaining. We will keep life as we've come to know it. Keep on keeping on. The word sustainable attaches to environmentalism. But sustainable is a reasonable, not preachy kind of environmentalism. We resist the word environmentalism. It suggests not is, but no. Stop driving. Stop heating this house. Stop powering this computer with ill-gotten electricity. But if humans are bad at one thing fundamentally, it is stopping. Animals animate. Going, going is something humans do well. When I think of sustainability, I think of the possibility of cars. High gas mileage, electric powered, even solar powered. But the solar-powered car, it only seats one. It goes slow. It's hard to drive on rainy days. I don't want no. I want forward. I want fast. And this essay goes on to describe people vacuum in their in my neighborhood vacuuming their rocks to you know keep them extra shiny. Um, you know, and he thinks he is sustaining the beauty of the neighborhood or something. So I kind of love the way that you can imagine sustaining or sustainability as a way of preserving your own life. But if you tease open that word enough that maybe we can say sustaining just our own existence and our own individual ways of doing things might not be the most uh, loving thing to do in the end. I, I want to circle back to to the way that you first started describing the the challenges of sustainability and i th- i think that that there's a wonderful parallel you're drawing so maybe the default assumption about sustainability is that we see it as a set of uh, practices as a set, a set of protocols you know things you shouldn't shouldn't do um, ways of of looking at natural resources or human expenditure or something like that but the way you were describing it it sounds like your view of how we actually get there is to see our relationship with the earth and the things that are asked of us of sustainability as being complex as our emotional relationships with one another when we're in love, when we're in a familial relationship, that that it's not some sort of exterior thing we need to do, but we need to think about it with all the complexity of our own emotional lives. Is that right? That is right. And that's beautifully put. You know, I feel like this book, I, I, it would be hard for me. I mean, I feel like that's, that's absolutely correct. And that that is what I learned from writing the book, but I don't feel like I went in knowing that that was going to happen. And that's one of the, the great things I think about, um, about, you know, writing nonfiction as, as from a personal point of view anyway, is that you think, okay, I'm going to bring in this, you know, some of my own personal stories, and then I'm going to bring in some research that I've done, and then pull these two things together. And it was a discovery. It really was something that I, this is going to sound sort of cheesy, but I mean, I feel like it actually helped my marriage in some ways. And it really helped me understand, you know, people with addiction um, and people who, you know, are suicidal, that, that it's, you know, that it's this matter of, of 
maybe not complicating enough your relationships by, you know, putting, trying to put a label on things or making them, simplifying them so there is a solution is maybe one of the problems. But keeping things as complex as possible maybe gives you, you know, if you have 10 things, nine things are going crappy. If you have at least one of them is something you can, you can fall into and remember that this is, you know, one thing that keeps you going or keeps you in love. And I feel like that's true for, thinking about the planet and thinking about nature. It's like, if you look at it on this global perspective, on this really big climate change is going to crush us all, then I don't feel like we are going to be able to wrap our minds around it. It's just too big. But if you think of little things and little changes, you know, like there's a chance that maybe the, uh, that, uh, the mycelium from the, that grow, uh, mushrooms could absorb carbon. Or there is this great thing that the humpback whales are coming back. And the more humpback whales there are, the more poop, whale poop there is, the more whale poop there is, the more plankton there is, the more plankton there is, the more carbon is absorbed. You know, it's like these little connections to me. That's where hope lies. And that's where I feel like an escape from some of our, our worst habits and our worst behaviors might also lie. So that those examples are, are beautiful. And I found myself smiling and feeling like hopeful. You know, it's been 12 days of rain here in Ohio. And I'm like, sunshine. Um, <laughs> so, so I want to ask about sort of the mode of, of the book, because I think when, when readers see a title like sustainability, even if there's something curious under it, like a love story, they're expecting a certain kind of narrative that we've seen not only in in various books and Bill McKibben and things like that, but you know on the latest Animal Planet or something like that. And your book, if if you just sort of made a list of the kinds of stuff that shows up in it, I mean, there's like, yeah, you'd expect recycling, um, but there's like wines bottles and Sam's Club and getting kids and sitting in traffic and suicide and difficulties in marriage and references to literary things and stuff that you've seen on TV and TED Talks. I mean, it is like a jumble of material and yet it it all somehow works. And And I'm curious about the kind of generous invitation that you have to bring things into the world of this book. It, it doesn't kind of just keep all the messiness of life out. It seems to say instead, here's the swirl of, of stuff that we're in. Why not get it in this book and figure it out? <laughs> I love the characterization of the book. And it does feel like, I mean, when, when I moved into writing this book, you know, and I, I'm not entirely sure that the title doesn't uh, misrepresent that sort of collectiveness and accretion that happens in the book. And I also feel like it, it might um, it might seem too serious and too earnest. Um, but I'm hoping, you know, that, that from the first, you know, couple of pages, people realize, especially that first essay that has, you know, it is a jumble. I'll read a little bit from Dear Rain. Um, just to say, just to show that there's this feeling of pulling in, pulling in this whole world. And maybe that's part of the impetus was like, maybe I can get the whole world in here and you guys will see what I'm talking about. Um, but you know, this is just, this is just a really sort of crazy paragraph that includes so many things that is kind of the point of the book. So I'll just read a little bit and then just to show, just to show what it sounds like some of the time in the book. It sounds sort of jumbled. So rain should make me think about weight, heavy land, soap, clothes. Do you remember the time we went running in the rain? That was Utah. And right after you made me believe we would return to Portland, we didn't. Instead, we ate Portland at the lunch truck like pock pock, but not sesame beef and a taco. And then we drove further south. The dirt turned sand and you said, you can see the whole world in a grain of sand. So I rubbed it into my eye. The doctor said the cornea scratched, but that was just a second on a record player. We played only twice. Talking heads, dire straits, Johnny Cash. Now you, me, and sand. Nothing between us as one pure metaphor. But I can feel the sand in my hair and the sand in you. Together. Forever. And so in that, in just that, you know, I just picked that paragraph and not all the paragraphs are like this warning, warning. There, is, there are parts that are more narrative and expository and, you know, connect, connect um, the, some of the uh, associations together. But I feel like that 
mode. And this is, this is something, you know, I feel like I, I gave myself permission to write in my way. And I guess in my way is sort of the brain, the way my brain works. So I pull these associations together and I say, okay, what, what are the connections between that, between these things? What's the connection between Portland and sand and, and Johnny Cash? And again, I don't explain that directly, especially not in that paragraph, but by the minute I can sort of specify and um, illuminate and bring in numinous things. And I feel like, okay, I've got, I've got subject, I've got stuff here. Now what am I going to do with it? And, and as the book goes on, you know, it returns to these themes. It returns to tacos. There's a lot about tacos in the book. There's a lot about going to Portland. There's a little bit more about Johnny Cash. Um, this idea that, that these are themes and threads and they may not tie perfectly together at the end, but they do repeat. And these are so back to that, that metaphor I was making earlier. If you only have, if you have 10 things that you love, 10 numinous things, and nine of them aren't going well, one of those threads might be working for you. One of those threads might be the thing that you can cling to. And the more stuff that's in the book, I think that is, is sort of the, the, mm, so I don't want to say lesson. I'm going to say lesson. I don't want to say lesson. But it's sort of the lesson I learned. I'll put it that way. The lesson I learned from the book is the more stuff you have and can hold on to, the less hopeless you feel. And by, you know, just looking around and, you know, it, it, it hasn't, I, I feel like sort of a, an internet-y feel about it because, you know, I can do that kind of research on, online. I can find stuff about whale poop and carbon sucking mushrooms and how much whiskey can you drink before you die. And I can put all those things together because I have that great access through, through the internet. But what the internet doesn't provide sort of is that, that sense of, of motif and return to the, those matters and those meanings. And I feel like it's in the returning to and that kind of saying, look, this happens again. This recurs and recurrence is, is is the dream really right that's the thing we're really trying to sustain is that idea that we can return to humpback whales we can return to to plankton we can return to to mushrooms in the forest and they will be there and they will be there and they will be there um, and that's i guess why I, I the more stuff that's in there the more stuff you can return to it strikes me that recurrence could also be a a nice functional synonym for sustainability in that as long as something recurs, it's being sustained. I think so. I think that I just had that uh, just in describing recurrence. I'm like, I guess that is what sustainability means. Yeah. Right? Which, so I'm struck by the fact that you're, you're describing the book in writerly terms and why wouldn't you, right? I, I think that a lot of us would think about sustainability in, in sort of ethical terms or, you know, recycling, that sort of stuff, um, practice. So, so let me ask you a question about, about narrative form, since you've described yours so well. Is, is the, the use of this accretive style of this, this mode that you have of, of bringing things in and having them return and recur, um, rather than telling a linear narrative you know, dropping in expository facts and interpretations and personal anecdotes and something that that feels very beginny, middle-y, and endy in a traditional way. Is the is the world too messy a thing for traditional narrative? I'm thinking of all those those environmental books out there that that start with a story, right? However many billion years ago the earth was formed. Is it just that the only way we're going to get our our head or our lives around what's going on in the world around us and what's happening to the planet and ourselves is to stop trying to think in traditional narrative and figure out new ways to understand our story that invite in that magnitude of mess and stuff and life. I mean, I, I think that there is absolutely that, that there's some deep truth to that, that there's a, that again, that's like along the lines of how do you change your perspective? Maybe you have to let things get messy. Maybe you can't imagine that sort of linear arc. You know, uh, Stephen Jay Gould has the, that book, uh, Time's Arrow and Time's Circle. I think I'm getting it kind of wrong. Or, yeah, Time's Cycle. Anyway, the, I, the image of time going forward and and you know towards some sort of ending and then the idea of time going back and around and around in circles and in and invoking 
recurrence. So of course, a year of a, for a human goes forward, but a year for a planet goes around and around and around. And to think, you know, maybe we need both versions. Um, I love straightforward narrative. I, what happens to me when I, you know, try to write something, again, I feel like it becomes pedantic or it becomes lesson learning and uh, moralizing. Plus, I feel like there's something that I think that you're, you're onto something that suggests that there's one right answer or there's one way to, to solve this problem. And what I really feel is like everybody needs to go write their own book about sustainability and love and, and figure out, okay, what does, how, how, how does this connect to my real life practices or how does this connect to other books or how does it connect to other people? I mean, the thing I love most about having a book is like it takes me places and I get to chat you know, with you on an interview, like that's the thing. And so to make these connections does seem like you need that sort of pulling in that, um, that focus on the tiny details that say that is interesting. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep that somehow in my, in my consciousness and in my, in my book. So I can, I can return to it and, and see what sort of, what sort of motifs, um, that I, I'm working on, not only literally, but in my, in, in my own life. If you can have, you know, one, I, I feel like there's a lot of people that don't have that thing that says, I'm going to, I'm going to make it no matter what, because I have, you know, birds or I'm going to make it. No, I mean, you and I are lucky. We have, we have words, you know, um, but not everybody has that. And I think, I think that, um, thinking in that way, thinking that I'm going to accrete things and pull things in and pay a super attention to the, the smallest differences in the world around me. That's one way to change your, just your hopefulness. And then I, so that therefore too, I feel like that's a great way also to think of how books can, can collect. They can, they can, they can be their own kind of, of touchstone for recurrences, right? Like I'm going to keep this in my book. What I love about that description is the way you moved from within the book, there's this world of accretion where things come together and, you know, even amid elements of despair, there are, you know, beams of hope, um, but that a book itself can function that way. Or maybe a podcast interview that's, that suddenly, you know, they're like these little magnets around which things begin to swirl and come together and um, that the that there's a form of human connection that's not unlike the kinds of connections that you're trying to make within the book. Absolutely. So I'm reading uh, Robert Sapolsky's book, Behave. And and I, I think I, I mean, I read the appendix and everything, so I feel like I'm close to understanding that there's there's this part of the brain that creates these, you know, pockets, um, receptors, so you can catch certain things like certain neurons that, that shoot dopamine in one direction. Um, and you can have, um, you, you, the synapses burn in a certain way towards these receptors. But once those receptors are sort of built, it's really hard to get new ones. And to me, one of the things about, you know, just looking at the world slightly differently, look, be, this is what I tell my students. So I was like, be weird. Like, lay down on the ground and look at the ceiling before you write, you know, do put your nose in inside a, a dandelion before you, 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 you sit down to write because then you're thinking about things and just you've done something to your brain that sort of switches it up and that sense of switching it up, you know, or, or trying to look at things in any ways. I, I, there is some, apparently research that shows you can start to change those receptors in your brain. And the more receptors you have, the more synapses have places to go. And you're actually expanding not only, you know, your, your, your brain, but also your, your emotional capacity for feeling about, for feeling things. And so that sense of, you know, get, getting more stuff, looking at things differently is Building, you know, trying trying to build a brain that's a little bit different, I think, is actually what we need to do to have any chance of of stopping climate change. And maybe it is just by, you know, looking, picking up a grain of sand and saying, you know, a Shakespeareanly, the, the whole world is in this. See, we can see the whole world if we look close enough. Did that answer your question at all? 
I, I think that's that's a great another way to say about it. We we need, obviously right if you kind of look around in some ways the the brains that we have built are not up to the task that we know that the brain knows is in front of it. So if we can build the brain a little bit differently, if we can collect what we used to tell in narratives a little bit differently, if we can stick our nose far enough into the the dandelion, right, and it comes out yellow, then we might be able to figure out um, a way to move forward. But but stressing what you've stressed all along, which is it, there's feel a little bit different um, as well, that it's not just an intellectual process, but an emotional one. Exactly. If nothing um, else, we can get more dopamine. That's great. <laughs> That's a great thing. Well, I do want to circle back. So I think by now listeners would have, I, I would hope, uh, an idea that, that that you are a writer who's full of joy and humor. Um, and I think one of the, like in a dark and witty sense, I'll just quote one of the titles of the essay, the end of coffee is the end of the world, <laughs> right? Like that's hilarious. <laughs> um, there's your apocalypse for you. Um, what What I think is, is ambitious about the book. And one of the reasons that it's an important book is that you do tackle some really difficult material. And, and I think if I could set up one subject you take on, and, and it takes us back to where we were earlier in the conversation, where you were saying, you know, there are some people out there where there's not that thing, there's not the words or the birds, um, where there's despair instead of hope. And so there's this parallel that that runs through the book. It's one of the motifs that comes back. It's one of the recurrences. And it basically goes something like this, right? One way you can think about what's happening to the planet is that humanity is committing collective suicide. And you put that up against people who have been victims of suicide. And you think those things together and I'm wondering if you could tell us about that aspect of the book, because I, I think it brings this dimension to the, you know, <laughs> what happens if, if we can't do it finally, right? right? If you can't make it, if you can't sustain it. Um, so you think the other side, which I think is both sort of artistic courage, but more importantly, moral courage to say, okay, well, what if? And there's this... <laughs> You know, it, there is this sort of meta level of the book, which is kind of, you know, how does writing save them? How, how does writing help me save myself? And that chance that maybe it doesn't, right? Or that sense that maybe artists are more depressive or more likely to, to commit suicide. And that, that meta level actually helps me get into, into the idea of, of how suicide sort of works. So um, as, as far as I understand. So, you know, I was describing the image of the astronaut looking back on the earth as this, as this blue marble. And that sort of dissociation, that ability to separate from, you know, he, the astronaut doesn't see his family anymore. He doesn't, he doesn't, he can't put his nose inside the dandelion. He sees this world, world in this kind of strangely abstract way. And maybe with great, you know, seeing it with great fragility, maybe with great power too. And those are two sides of the same coin. But then he goes back to earth, right? And what do you do with that knowledge? And I feel like suicide, people who have suicidal ideations have that ability, that capacity to separate from their lives and see themselves from above and beyond and to be able to say, you know, I could see the world going on without me. I could see, you know, being, if I leave this world, the pain will stop. And, um, you know, uh, David Foster Wallace, who, who features in the book has that, that quotation. It's like people who don't understand suicide are like, but you're in a burning building and, you don't want to jump, but what's really the difference, right, between burning in the life, right, or jumping to your own death? And that, that sense of being able to see, you know, see what it's like to imagine a world without you in it is very similar, I think, too, to imagining, you know, to, to writing about a world that, that you know, will, it will not look like it looks right now and, you know, could cease to exist for a lot of species, if not humans, too. And that does that connection to me, that ability to separate and look is dangerous and scary, but it's also a gift, right? It's a gift to be able to say, I can see a world 
without me, but I can also see a world with me. And I can also see, I can see the world as an astronaut looking back on it like a marble, but I can also go back and stick my nose in that dandelion. And that, that, you know, I, I this, you know, this isn't meant to, to, the book isn't meant to save anyone necessarily, except maybe myself, is to remind me and maybe some readers that, that you're going to have times where you do feel abstracted and separate and, and, and not necessary for the workings of the planet, but that, Turn the page, change the perspective, get more stuff in your head, create more, create more uh, receptors for your synapses, and you know, sometimes dive back in. So you know, I it, it's I feel like it's dangerous territory. Like you said, it's it's not it's it's not it's not easy place to talk about when you know you've known people who've committed suicide, you know people who who died, and you feel like that they had that ability to see their lives separate from themselves or see their death separate from, you know, their, their current, their current, uh, depression and say, this is the better, this is the better solution. And I guess if, if, if anything in the book, you know, has, has a, a moral lesson is, you know, just turn the page and you'll see it a different way. Turn the page, turn the page and just keep turning the page. And that's sort of that again, back to the idea of time's arrow versus time cycle. Um, there's something to be said for time zero, like time does change things and move, moving forward is, is sometimes all you can do. Um, but in doing so, you know, you're still gathering, you're gathering stuff, you're gathering words from the page, you're gathering, you know, tiny grains of sand, you're gathering mushrooms. I, th- I think one of the the challenges, and and this goes back to the the dark humor of the book that shows up. Um, every once in a while, you get a dog bark too, which is wonderful. We've had cats, we've had dogs. We're a wild, wild morning. I think you've cued them to to just bring in an illustration of suddenly joy bursts in right as we're talking about the the death of the exactly. planet. Exactly, I think that um, is that's a mode too. The right? dog don't care. It's pretty important um, for most most things. Yes, the dog says squirrel, squirrel. I just um, and that that's exactly where I was going, um, which is there's this, there's this great chapter where where you kind of reckon with the fact that like yeah you know sustainability. The Earth doesn't really care. The Earth is working in geological time. You know, um, deal with it. And and it's it's this kind of great reversal of perspective where suddenly this this planet that we're so focused on, this little tiny blue marble that we inhabit, um, you reverse the the perspective and say, you know, here we are. In some ways, it's a it's a it's an object that doesn't love you back. You know, that's, I think, in a limited way, but that there's that element of truth to it. You know, the earth is going to go on whether we're a part of it or not. It's so true. And, you know, like, I think that where the sadness of the earth, you know, I, I, I have many layers of, of, of sadness, but there is that, that sort of that change of perspective, that sort of geological way of looking at things or, or that, you know, spatial, like actually, you know, interstellar way of looking at, at the planet. It does. It, there's something really satisfying about it. Just like, you know, just like little details in, you know, about uh, relationships it seems so ridiculous in the, in the, with, you know, a couple weeks of perspective. I have that chapter love in the time of global warming where I talk about my husband and I we're at God, Sam's club. And I, maybe I'll read a little bit of this. Um, we're at Sam's club and we are fighting really good here about paper towels. So, um, let me let me just read a couple of paragraphs here. Um, so I'm, tra- I'm I don't like to go to Sam's Club, but we don't have a Costco, so we suffer we suffer deeply in Flagstaff. Um, so I go there and I say this: two milk cheese and thirteen dollar bottles of Joel Gott wine make it worth it to me. I won't buy the steaks there, even though their meat is supposedly the freshest in town. If I'm going to eat meat. I'm only going to buy the kind from Flying M Ranch, grass-fed, local, which is six ninety-nine a pound for hamburger, three times what it is at Sam's. And I mean it. I won't buy it until I see the steaks and the hamburger on sale, and I really want to make tacos. I put the Sam's Club meat in my cart. I hate being a hypocrite, which just makes me more of a hypocrite, which makes me grumpy and oversensitive and a really fun shopping partner. I'm still complaining as I continue to pile stuff into the cart. Eric puts his own addiction into the cart, a city of paper towels. 
I say, no way, not those. We do not need that many paper towels. Where will we put them? I need them to finish painting the hallway, he says. Finish painting. Words are usually golden words to convince me to go along with anything he says, but not this time. They're not even recycled, I say. Although I protest, we both keep walking toward the checkout. I have my own Sam's Club card, he says. He puts them on the conveyor belt. At first I let him sit there, and then I shake my head. I'm snarking under my breath, and then I get loud and say, no way, we cannot get those. I take them off the conveyor belt. Everyone is looking at us. I know I am embarrassing Eric, but this is beyond unreasonable. Everyone is looking, he whisper yells as he puts the paper towels back on the belt. I don't care if they're looking. They're not recycled. So I bring this, I bring this goofy essay into thinking like these are the little stupid arguments we have, you know, pretty much once a week um, based on, you know, there's episodes of Tupperware lids and who's making the, who's, who's made the coffee most recently and who's taking on the compost and these little tiny details. If you can abstract enough, right. And, you know, have like um, an hour where you're not stressed out about who's, you know, your job and who's going, who's taking what kid where you're like, Oh, there's some perspective. This is actually kind of a nice relationship and it's cool to be able to hang out with somebody and fight about paper towels. So back to the big, the big idea of, of the planet being, you know, not really caring what happens to humans. It's like on a day-to-day basis, it is pretty grim, but the, geological situation is actually pretty positive. Things keep going on. The planet will sustain itself. And sometimes it's good just to sit sit back and relax and say, this thing, it's good. I might, you know, this is gonna, might be a shit show for, you know, seven, six billion of the seven billion people. And that sucks. And that's, a, there's a lot of moral problems there in, in terms of hum, human, humanity, but in terms of geology, it's pretty much okay. Um, and I worry, you know, that we, that we started this conversation talking about the dogs, you know, and I feel like it sucks that we're creating, you know, that we're going to possibly build this border wall on the, um, in the middle of the National Butterfly Sanctuary. And that the first ocelot was found um, or has been seen in like 60 years um, on the Mexico-Arizona border. And we do these things constantly just destroying entire habitats and, and entire species, and then by extension ourselves. But in, the, in, in that same way, those are, those are details that are problematic when you look at them immediately, but if you look at them with a grand scheme of things, it is nice to take a break and say, the earth will keep going, and probably some species will survive. I was I was thinking back to you and your husband having a a, a marital meltdown in Sam's Club, and uh, what what I like about that and, and the way you've just explained going from fighting in Sam's Club to you know geological time, deep time, um, is that I think for most of us, environmentalism and sustainability, it seems like this oddly bifurcated or split experience. Like you have the moment where you're going to decide your vote in part based on the, the ecological record of the candidate or something, or, or you decide, am I going to buy solar panels or, you know, when I get my next car, will it have, you know, certain sorts of features that that make me feel like I'm making a commitment to the environment, even if it ends up costing more. So there, there seem like these policy decisions that you're about to make about your life. And then there are these moments where you're like, I'm about to throw a party. And if I use real plates, it's going to take two days to clean up. But if I use paper plates, I could do it before I go to bed. But I can't get recycled paper plates. So wait, what do I do? And and how do I do it? And you know, and so there's this really on the ground element of it that, that isn't even clean. It's just the in the moment kind of life is going by really hard. Um, and and your book is full of that. You know, it's you're a parent, you're you're in the marriage, and you're trying to figure out. You're sitting in a car, you know judging people who are sitting in an SUV, like that sort of stuff. And so there's this sense of 
here's what it looks like when it actually plays out. And, and you divide, you're, you're able to come across, I think, what most of us do experience is a split between sitting down and thinking about the environment and being in the middle of a grocery store and thinking, oh, oh gosh, does this mean the hallway is not going to get finished? You know, is it never going to get painted? Exactly. And I mean, I guess it's similar to that process of the accretion element of the book of bringing all of these things in is just like everything sort of relates. And that can be difficult, right? That can feel really jumbled in your head. It can feel exhausting to always be thinking, oh, what, where did my coffee come from today? But it's also, you know, through that, if, if, if you're, you know, and it's helpful if you're writing a book about it, that everything that is the lens that you've got on. Um, when I was writing the egg book, I looked a lot, I talked a lot about eggs. Everything I read was about eggs. Um, but you know the sustainability thing. I think that's part of the the playfulness of the title too. Is sustainability is paying a con- being conscious of sustainability, even if you can't always pull it off, or even if it sort of sometimes makes you a jerk in the parking line when you're the SUV is idling and you're also in your own car. Hopefully not idling. But I, you know, I'm thinking so the, that that perspective of having everything being sort of touched and tinged by is this good or bad, you know, what am I, am I, you know, making more, um, am I contributing more of a disaster just by, you know, writing this book that, you know, uses paper and oh my gosh, comes shrink wrapped in plastic. I don't know why that happened. Um, you know, am, or am I contributing by saying, look, you know, this, this idler, this person that was such a jerk when he was in his car, I actually met at the parent-teacher meeting and is actually an okay guy. And he's, uh, you know, he's this forester that plants all these trees. You know, that there's that, um, that sort of patience or waiting for a better connection to be made is part of that sense of looking at everything through sustainable eyes and that multiplicity of definitions of sustainability. Like maybe it's more important to maintain maintain a friendship with this guy than to yell at him for the car that he's driving because it's those kind of connections and unity that are actually going to change things. You know, I've been thinking about the Green New Deal and how, how that's, you know, going to work and what, how it's going to work, if it's going to work. It's just everybody has to say, yeah, everybody who um, can get on that side, we can fuss with the details, but that's the kind of connections I'm hoping people make is, you, we may not exactly agree on how many solar panels each house needs or what kind of electric cars we, we are going to drive, but that sense that we are pushing big time that direction um, as a group, that unity, I think comes from those tiny connections you make with individual people and, and try to sustain individual relationships over time. And that's the kind of push that I actually think is going to make the real change we need. I, th- I think one of the the key terms that comes up again and again in the book is is balance, <laughs> and it seems like that that that's a way of thinking about how these connections can be sustained. That it's not every moment in which you have an environmental choice is a zero sum game of you are for or against. Right? You left your car idling, and so therefore our friendship is severed. Um, yeah, instead, it, it's sort of that there may be this this sort of larger equation where despite the fact that you left your car idling, you plant trees and cultivate the forest. And so in the larger sense of things, your balance is coming out on the the kind of right side of environmental history. Um, and that that we have to allow for that in ourselves as well as those with whom we're going to enter into this enterprise with. Totally. I think of it as a personal cap-and-trade program, right? So you're going to have a thing. Like, everybody's going to have their thing that they just have to do. Um, you know, like, I'm going to turn the heat up to 62. Um, all right, it's at 67. I admit it. Um, but I'm not going to eat red meat. Right. So that's one balancing thing you can do. I'm going to buy this ridiculous uh, four wheel drive car because I live in snowy Blackstep, but I'm going to spend, you know, three weeks a year planting trees. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm never going to use plastic wrap again. I'm going to make my beeswax. I'm going to buy beeswax wraps forever. You know, it's like it's that sort of balance, that sort of ability to see, you know, and I really do like this phrase personal cap and trade as something that can kind of let you 
rest a little bit, to take some of that exhaustion away. And you're still using all of that consideration and uh, brain associations and bringing, you know, fear of every, you know, move you make is going to make some, some difference. But that sense of every move you make is going to make some difference can be offset by something else. Yeah, I th- I think when you you were talking about the the kind of attitude a little earlier of of what makes for a sustainable approach, you described it um, as like if you went through the world and you saw everything kind of touched and tinged by um, a care for the the planet and the environment. And when you said that, it struck me that that's that's a description I've heard of love quite a bit, right? That when you're in love, everything you do is touched and tinged by the care you have for your children or the affection you have for your partner. And uh, and to me, it just seemed like this wonderful moment where the subtitle and title came together unironically, um, and that you showed us how sustainability can be a form of love. And I think um, what I'm hearing right now is that it might also be a form of of self-love in a greater sense. Absolutely. That sense of like the numinous and the illuminated numinous, right? Like so many things in the world, so much stuff that if you, you know, if if all you did all day was to just imagine the things that tinged with, with a tiny, tiny bit of glow, you know, and self, you know, even if it's projected a little bit, right? Like you might not always, um, see it but if you project it and have this sense that inside there is stuff like there is this stuff that 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 vibrates um with with love or with with um even just you know energy that is that is is looking for a connection a connection in the human mind a connection in the animal mind um even the way you know we've been reading lately that trees communicate right the sense maybe it's communication too is a big part of it right which is if we think of everything trying to communicate with everything else that that um that that charles altieri phrase that you're expanding the available universe right you're making the world more seeable, more noticeable, more touchable, um, because you're, you're putting that attention to it. And that attention is a kind of, a kind of loving glow. I love that phrase, Eric. That's really nicely put. Well, so to, to just sort of jump off that now that you have, have written this book, where are you taking your numinous (laughs) love for words? Uh, currently what's your next project? What can we expect down the line? I have a new coming out from Rose Metal Press that I wrote with David Carlin. And David Carlin is this writer from Melbourne, Australia. And he and I met at the Nonfiction Now conference. And it is called The After Normal, 26 Brief Alphabetical Essays on a Changing Planet. And it's, it, it is different in some ways than, um, than, this, than sustainability because it, it enacts sort of that collaborative project that I call for in sustainability. Say, if you work together, if you make connections between and across um, as many people and as many things as you can, you will expand that available reality. And so this does it in a, in a, a, a more organized fashion because it's alphabetical. Um, and so David and I go back and forth talking about, you know, our experience with, you know, the changing, the changing climate and how maybe grief and terror aren't the best ways to, to see what's happening. But we, we move from the premise of uh, Donna Haraway's premise of staying with the trouble. Like let's sit with this discomfort for a while, see where it takes us. And it's, it's, it, 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 you know, a lot of the, the moves are, um, are similar to what happens in sustainability and that, you know, pay attention to things. But in this case, because it's, you know, each one is, is a focused letter, you actually sit with each individual object for a while longer. And so there's all kinds of research and, and surprises that happen just because, you know, one of us chose, you know, loophole for the letter L and one of us chose, um, uh, plasmodia for the letter P. It's really, I think, a pretty fun, fun book, um, to think about. Again, a, a more um, not quite funny way, but at least you know there's a, a fanciful way of looking at climate change. And then I'm working on a novel about McDonald's and climate change. We'll see how that goes. And then Wait, t- <laughs> say a little bit more about that. <laughs> well, this woman. So uh, I, I, 
Tall Baby's book, The Sellout, was just, it was an inspiration to me about how a voice-driven novel can really just take a story and own it, even though there's not a lot of, you know, plot happening. Um, But then I end up running into a lot of plot. So it's about this woman who posts apocalypse is living in New York with her mother who saves every piece of plastic she's ever owned. So they have a lot of resources thanks to her mother's, you know, sort of hoarding and, um, and inability, you know, like recycling couldn't, re- couldn't recycle number twos anymore. So now their house is full of recycling plastic number two. Um, and how she, uh, her daughter's dying of chemotherapy. So she needs to, to make these deals with some pretty shady characters that were really, instrumental in actually creating climate change. We'll see. Now it's gotten too fanciful. We'll have to pull it back a little bit. Um, and then I'm working- now it sounds like a mini series. <laughs> and then I'm working on a book about apples and choice. And about, so there's, so if you think about apple trees and how much cultivation and care each apple tree needs, and you compare it to say the aspen forest, that the aspen trees seem to be able to sort of manage on their own until they're impacted by climate change. And apple trees need all this sort of help and support. And I compare that, you know, in a lot of ways to the school choice movement and this feeling that, you know, our precious children need, you know, each individual school tailored just for them. Um, And then I talk about choice in a lot of different ways from there. So that is another, it's the lens through which I'm viewing this book is through apple trees and aspen trees. And it helps me sort of narrow down these big ideas like school choice or choice in general. So So, Nicole, these all sound awesome and fascinating and far reaching and yet somehow have the same sensibility. So let's say that there's listeners out there that want to keep up with you. It's not going to be easy for them, but if they could, where would where would they find you? What would be their next step? So, so I have a website called uh, NickWalk at no, just NickWalk.com. It's really easy to to remember, and that's also my uh, email address, NickWalk at gmail.com. And people can email me and talk to me, and I blog on this website sometimes. And every week, I write a column to the governor of Arizona asking him to please restore uh, education funding. And I don't only talk about education funding. I talk about all kinds of things, like the fact that it's raining in Flagstaff. Normally, we get 115 inches of snow a year. Now, this year, we've gotten about 10 inches of rain. Um, that's not normal. So I write to the governor about that. And you can find that in our local weekly called Flag Live, which is kind of a great magazine and uh, comes out for free every week. And you can find it online. Live. Nicole Walker, thank you for being on the New Books Network. Eric LeMay, it's always so fun to talk to you. I cannot wait to see you in person soon. I'll look forward to that too. Thanks, Eric. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Nicole Walker, author of Sustainability, A Love Story, on the Literature Channel of the New Books Network.